Amen. If you have your Bibles, you open up to the second letter of Timothy. And as you do that, there's a couple other books that I'm going to ask you to look at. First is Deuteronomy, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's in the very beginning of the Bible. And then you go forward a few other books and you'll get to 1 Kings. And the reason why is because I want to start this morning in the Old Testament. Yes, we do read and preach the Old Testament, and you would be good to read it. But we're going to spend a few minutes in the Old Testament, first in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and then in 1 Kings chapter 2. Now, these two chapters in the Old Testament is where you will find the final words of two famously faithful men that were used by God. One was named Moses, and the other was named David. Often believed to be one kind of large final sermon, the book of Deuteronomy records in chapter 30 the last words of the man named Moses who led Israel for 40 years, led led them out of Egypt, led them through the wilderness, and then to the edge of the promised land. And due to one moment of disobedience, God told Moses he was not going to be allowed to go into the promised land with his people. And so shortly before he dies, he's probably around 120-ish years old, he offers these final words to Israel who will go forward without him. Beginning in verse 15, it says this, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his way, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over to the Jordan to enter and possess. So I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to them. Simple summary, Moses tells God's people as his last deathbed words to walk in God's ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, and find life. Fast forward 42 generations, which is 1,200-ish years, and we read in 1 Kings chapter 2 the final words of King David. These words were spoken to his young son Solomon. And after anointing Solomon king over Israel, David proceeds to offer him some similar sounding last words. In 1 Kings chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, it said, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, 
and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your son pays close attention to their way to walk before me in all faithfulness with all their heart and all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. The words sound very familiar. David's deathbed words to his son to walk in God's ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, and find life. So fast forward again to where we're at here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And here we read the final deathbed words, if you will, of another faithful leader, likely written weeks, possibly days, before his execution in Rome where he'd be beheaded. The entire letter, as we've said, could be considered the best of his last words. But chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, I think represents the last of his best words. Right after this, he'll close the letter with some kind of pragmatic instructions. So for me, this is the best of his last words. After 30 years of ministry, he is preparing himself, preparing God's people, preparing his son in the faith named Timothy for his death. And so just as Moses told Israel, just as David told Solomon, Paul is now telling Timothy, and he has already told him several times, hold fast to God's word, walk in his ways, keep his commandments and his statutes and his rules. And now in these last verses, he tells him very specifically how to best do that, why he should do that, and what happens and awaits those who do it well. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'll read eight verses, and we'll hear his final words. He writes, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The best of his last words. Some good words. The Apostle Paul ends his letter with a very strong and very clear exhortation, like testifying under oath in the presence of Jesus Christ, the resurrected, reigning, and returning judge. It's as if Paul calls Timothy to solemnly swear with him to fully commit himself to one task, preaching the word, 
Now, the term for preach here means to proclaim with authority. And although preaching is the primary role of a pastor, I would argue that it is the principal responsibility of every single Christian. Yes, it's the primary role of a pastor. Primarily, they preach. But there are many pulpits in the world that parents and people preach from, if you will. God's servants, man, woman, and child, they are preachers. Even if you're not a vocational minister, more than once, Paul has told Timothy to avoid stupid conspiracies, to avoid foolish debates, to avoid ignorant speculations. But that doesn't mean he's supposed to be silent. Only that if he is going to proclaim something, if he is going to post something, if he is going to otherwise promote something, let it primarily be the Word of God. Now elsewhere, Paul refers to the Word to be preached as the faith to be kept. It's almost as if he uses them synonymously. In Romans 10, Paul combines these two words and he says the Word of faith that we proclaim, making that kind of connection. Now, that reminded me of what the Apostle Jude wrote in his epistle, in verse 3. You may have heard before, but he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you for this, to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Now, God's servants aren't to be quarrelsome, but both Jude and Paul seem to imply that there is a time to speak up. There is a time to take up arms, if you will. There is a time to draw lines in accord with God's Word. The late apologist and author, Walter Martin, which those of us who are longer in the tooth may remember him as the first Bible answer man, pretty charismatic and outgoing guy, but he said it this way, controversy for the sake of controversy is sin, but controversy for the sake of truth is a divine command. We ought not preach or contend for the words of men. We ought preach and contend for the very words of God. And when we say that, we're not contending merely for a collection of wisdom or a record of history. We're not merely contending for some code of ethics or some really helpful moral stories. We're not contending for some inspiring songs to sing or some clever spiritual ideas. We are contending for God's greatest self-revelation. We are contending for God's decreed will. We are contending for the power of salvation for all who believe. There is nothing more important for us to contend for. The word that Paul says to preach. The faith 
that Jude says to defend can be broadly defined as this, the essential body of Christian beliefs found in the Scriptures, found in the Bible. Now, this is the deposit that he speaks of often, the deposit of sound doctrine that he says accords with the gospel. And this was entrusted to Paul, who entrusted it to Timothy, and over generations has been entrusted to us in our generation. And though Christians can and will disagree about certain matters, there are essential teachings that are worthy of debate in the church and even worthy of division. These are the biblical truths. The biblical truths that all Christians must believe if they are going to be called Christian. And it is these things that Paul tells Timothy to be concerned with this. Out of all the stuff you could talk about, all the words that could be shared, all the things you could promote and post and proclaim, let it be these core things found in the Word of God. Well, how exactly is he to proclaim these things? Certainly every preacher has their own unique style. Every person has their own unique style. But by definition, every sermon, whether spoken in a church context or out in the world, every sermon includes at least two things. A speaker and a listener. Otherwise, it's not preaching. I imagine you could go into a closet and proclaim truth to yourself or in the bathroom mirror, and that's cool. Nothing wrong with that. Still glorifies God. But when we're talking about preaching, there is a speaker and there is a listener. And so Paul expects Timothy, by nature of preaching, to do more than just open his mouth, vomit out all the Bible verses he's memorized to whoever happens to be in earshot. He instructs them exactly how to preach the word. And the first thing he tells them is to be ready. Be ready in season. Be ready out of season. Timothy is to be ready to preach, an urgency to preaching. As the seasons change, he is supposed to be alert and awake and and aware. And I believe here Paul is not primarily talking about the listener's receptiveness, but actually talking about the preacher's preparedness. To be ready in and out of season does not necessarily mean be ready whether your words are warmly welcomed like summer or coldly rejected like winter. On the contrary, Paul is charging Timothy to be prepared to speak whether it's convenient for him or not. Whether it's easy for him or not. See, we can easily turn this be ready phrase, be ready at all times, be ready in season, out of season. We can kind of turn that into some kind of biblical warrant to just unload truth whenever and wherever we are, even if someone doesn't want to hear it. I would argue that being ready at all times is not permission to be forceful. It's actually an appeal against laziness. Opportunities to speak the word abound in all of our lives. In our homes, 
in our schools, in the communities that we walk in and live in and recreate in, in our neighborhoods. There is no lack of opportunity. The preacher is to be on duty at all times, specifically and particularly ready to offer a reason for the hope that they have, especially for those who ask. Now, he gets even more specific. He says, be ready, and he tells Timothy to be ready to convince, be ready to rebuke and exhort through the preaching of the word. And again, being ready doesn't mean preaching without thinking. Timothy is to preach deliberately, intentionally, carefully. I'm not convinced that Paul wants Timothy to stand on the street corners and proclaim the gospel. I don't think anything's wrong with that, but I'm not sure that's the emphasis that he's trying to encourage Timothy to do. We must have a sense, insofar as we can, of whom we're speaking to. Why? Well, we all know that men have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. But I would argue that it doesn't do anyone any good if you're not speaking the proper truth to confront the particular lie that's being believed. Doesn't mean that it will come back void if you proclaim that word, but it certainly is possible you won't be heard at all. Therefore, we must be slow to speak. We must be quick to listen. We must not only be readers of the word, we actually must become readers of people. And by that I mean this, some we encounter will need convincing. Others will need rebuking. And still others will need encouraging. Because some will have disappointment. Others will have disagreements, and still others will have doubts. And so we must commit ourselves to preaching the right word at the right time, in the right way, to the right person. And if you don't believe me, you should commit yourself to reading and rereading and memorizing 1 Thessalonians 5.14. This is a verse in another one of Paul's letters, and he writes this, We urge you, brothers... Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. What does this have to do with preaching deliberately? There's a huge problem if you admonish the faint-hearted. They're already crushed. I don't think rebuke is the first thing they need. What if you encourage the idle? Well done on that laziness. We must be deliberate and careful and intentional. It's not just, I'm going to proclaim. It's preach the word. Be a reader of the word and be a reader of people. Speak the right words at the right time in the right way to the right person. But that last phrase, be patient with them all, leads to another thing Paul tells Timothy. He says, preach the word with complete patience. Not just some patience, not just a little patience, complete patience. Timothy is to preach patiently. So when you have a sense of urgency and 
want to be ready to preach at all times. We can sometimes use that be ready and sense of urgency as a justification for our bullishness, we'll call it. Wanting our preaching to evidence fruit in the listener, we will often force a decision with a head and fail to actually reach the heart. God has chosen his mechanism for salvation, and that is simply that faith comes by hearing the word preached. But preachers must be careful to remember where your responsibility begins and where your ability ends. Where your responsibility begins and where your ability ends. Preachers must never make the mistake of believing that you are the Holy Spirit. See, we can speak words and we ought to speak God's words. Proclaim them, preach them, use them to rebuke and convince, but know that we can speak his words, but we cannot change hearts. That power does not reside with us. And this is one of the reasons why I'm theologically reformed. I recently heard a non-reformed apologist, I'm sure he's a brother in Christ, I have no doubt about that. But I watched him recently in some kind of conference railing on the reformed view of salvation. And as he attempted to deconstruct election before an audience, he kept stating a phrase over and over again of what people have to do in order to be saved. And he said this, they just need to open up their heart. And I didn't know what he meant. It sounds really spiritual and good, though I don't know how to tell somebody to do that. In my view, that kind of opening is not the work of men. It is the work of God. I believe, as the scriptures teach, that we have a heart of stone. And until that heart of stone is replaced by God with a heart of flesh, it will not beat after his ways or statutes or commands. Paul has even said in this letter, in 2 Timothy 2, that repentance is granted. He used that as a reason why we shouldn't quarrel, why we should be patient. Repentance is granted by God's grace. It's not extracted by men's gifts. Our job is to proclaim and preach with patience, trusting God will change that heart. God will soften that heart. God will grant repentance. We're called to preach with patience and to love with forbearance and leave the rest to God. Well, finally, Paul tells Timothy something that's closest to my heart. He says, proclaim and preach the word with complete patience and by teaching. Timothy is to preach instructionally. And by that, we understand that preaching is not just a declarative ministry. It's not just a proclamation ministry. It's an educational, instructional ministry. The word we proclaim must certainly be true, but it must also be taught. In describing the history and heart of his own ministry in Acts 20, he is leaving, going 
to on his journey towards Rome, where he eventually will end up. He tells the Ephesian elders about his own ministry, what he had committed to do. In Acts 20, verse 20, he said, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He taught in public. He taught in private. He taught in large gatherings. He taught in homes. Paul committed himself to teaching, teaching God's word. Good preachers are good teachers. Good preachers are good teachers. It is easy to, and I'm not very good at it, but it's easy to get people emotionally riled up. God's not looking for a cheerleader, though it feels good to have that. He's looking for teachers. Good preachers are not just cheerleaders. Rah, rah, Jesus. Nothing wrong with that, but if that's where it ends, it's empty. Good preachers are good teachers. The Apostle Matthew was largely responsible for the first collection of the teachings of Jesus. It's what the Gospel of Matthew really is. I've come to love Matthew because he portrays Jesus as a teacher. I like that. More than any other gospel, 60% of this book is just Jesus' direct teaching. I think too often preachers are committed to the first half of the Great Commission. At the first half, go, yes, make disciples baptized, let's see conversions. And they fail to remember the second part of the Great Commission, where Jesus says, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Good preachers are good teachers. Paul reminds Timothy of that. It's not just declaring. There's some intentionality behind it. Well, why preaching the word? Why is this so important? Why is teaching God's word so essential? Well, Paul tells Timothy as he continues in verses 4 and 5, and essentially he explains this. There's going to be a time when people will not endure what? Sound teaching. Unsurprisingly, he says, they're going to turn away from listening to the truth and they're going to find teachers to suit their own passions. There are all kinds of ways that this happens. Sometimes this rejection of sound teaching happens when the Lord told me is substituted for the Bible says. Other times, the rejection of sound teaching happens when God's Word is reinterpreted or rejected altogether in order to sound more accommodating and appropriate for the culture. Repeating the mistakes of our first parents, unbelievers in the world, and so-called believers in the church even, will follow other counselors who will twist or replace God's word with lies that tickle the ears and bring tingles to the body. And sadly, these kinds of counselors will not be difficult to find in the last days. I would argue that even now, there are more teachers of falsehood than there are preachers of truth in the world. 
and more than any other time in history, we have more access to them all than ever. We live in the middle of a battlefield, and we must not forget that. The war is won, but there is a battle still going on. God's redemptive plan has not fully consummated. Preaching the word is the God-given weapon to combat this man-made problem. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul had charged him, like, wage the good warfare. He'd used battle language. He said, keep hold of the faith. Wage the good warfare. Keep hold of the faith. And then he later says in that same first letter that those who have rejected this, what have they done? They've made a shipwreck of their faith. They followed what he called in Ephesians the waves and winds of culture and they ran their life straight into the rocks. So once again in this same letter, Paul says, but as for you, Timothy, contrasting him with the other teachers, the other teachers who aren't preaching the word, preaching all kinds of things, but as for you, preach the word. In fact, he tells him, He is not to preach in order to appeal to the passions of people. He is to be sober-minded, meaning he is to be free of what might be described as intoxicating influences, ones that might lead any preacher away from sound judgment and good teaching. And I've thought about, like, what would tempt a preacher to do this? What would tempt him to stop preaching the word even if he's still preaching? And I came up with two temptations in my 15-ish years of ministry. What are the greatest temptations to uh, turn away from God's word and just go with perhaps the words of men? I found two things. One is criticism and the other is compliments. One is booze, and the other is applause. When you get the criticism, like, oh, don't preach that. And I've gotten plenty of emails over the years. Don't preach that. That's not what the culture needs. That's not what the church needs. And it's just the Word of God. It's very tempting to go, oh, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll avoid those passages. Maybe I'll avoid those truths. It's very tempting. But even more so, perhaps, in our world today is this, the applause. As you begin to appeal to the passions of the people in the culture, it's very easy to go like, well, those aspects of God's Word don't really make people comfortable, and they don't really match with culture, and they certainly don't build gatherings or bring applause, so maybe I'll turn away from them. Paul's telling him, preach the word, stay the course, because guess what? Preachers are often idolized and they're demonized. Paul experienced that. He was both idolized at times and he was demonized at times. A good teacher, knowing that will happen, must commit himself, therefore, to what he tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. What's the work of an evangelist? It's a preacher. Proclaiming the gospel, fearlessly pointing out false idols in the world and pointing away from false saviors, including himself. A good pastor, a good parent, 
A good Christian person, man, woman, or child, doesn't preach good advice, doesn't preach good works. They preach good news that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And he rose again. And those who confess that they are sinners and believe in their heart that God raised them are saved. That Jesus Christ died the death that we deserve and he lived a life that you couldn't possibly have done if you had tried. And he gives it to you by grace. And knowing that you're pointing away from yourself reminds a teacher that he must never forget that you are preaching in service to the resurrected Lord according to a ministry that you have received. Why do I say that? Well, Paul had experienced guys like, I'm on team Paul, I'm on team Apollos. It's very easy for churches to get polarized around a guy, around a preacher, around a pastor. A pastor and a preacher must always remember that he doesn't own the church. He didn't build the church. And that ministry, should you stray from the Lord's word, can be taken away like that. As was famously said, every preacher and pastor should commit himself to simply this. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. They should not commit themselves to making samfordministries.com and polarizing more people around themselves. If they're not willing to lay it down and walk away, if that's happening, they're in a bad place. Every preacher and pastor must commit themselves to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Because every single pastor and preacher is interim, and they're in service to the king. Well, Paul has held the line for 30 years. And like Moses and David before him, he knows his ministry is over and he's about to die. And he is not concerned about his legacy. He's not concerned about his name being carried on. He is only concerned with the name and the ways of the Lord. He views himself in those last verses as an offering on the altar. That's how he views himself. An offering on the altar, poured out in worship to the Lord. And he writes simply this, my time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now in his first letter, he was still doing those things, which is why he called to Timothy, keep fighting and keep running and keep holding on to the faith. Follow me as I follow Christ. But here, he ends his last letter as a man knowing that he has fulfilled his calling. And he's ready to depart. Paul has worked hard for years. And while many strayed from the course, some good friends of his, he has stayed the path. And I know that all too well. Some of you know that. Friends and pastors who have turned from God's word and made a shipwreck of their faith. But Paul has held the line and he has finished well. And he knows that in his absence, Timothy might be tempted tempted perhaps to be fearful, to retreat from 
his calling, to maybe be scared about his mission. And so he wants to inspire him to finish well because he's not done yet. And so Paul's declaration that my time has come, my time has ended, is an invitation to Timothy and also for all of us to view the coming days as his time, as your turn. It's Timothy's turn to fight just as it is yours. It's Timothy's turn to run just as it's yours. It's Timothy's turn to protect what has been entrusted to him, and so it is yours. It's Timothy's time just as it is yours to fulfill the ministry that you have received. Timothy is not being called to be Paul 2.0. He is called to be Timothy 1.0 and to fulfill the race that is before him. Now, this is not quite my swan song. That comes in a couple weeks. But it is Paul's. And if you didn't know, a swan song is the final performance of an actor or singer, composer, poet, or someone like that. And according to folklore, which it isn't actually true, but folklore has kind of brought this to bear. Swans were said to sing a very beautiful song before they died. Hence this phrase began to describe someone who was leaving. So with his final words, Paul reveals his true heart motivation behind all he has done for 30 years. And in verse 8 he says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So in the end, what does Paul say? Reminds Timothy of eternity. Reminds Timothy of the life to come as he continues to press through the life that is. You see, It doesn't matter if you're an 80-year-old fugitive shepherd like Moses or if you're a young teenager like David or if you're a zealous persecutor of the church like Saul. It doesn't matter if you're a financial advisor, if you're a Boeing painter, a Microsoft engineer, an architect, a plumber, an electrician, a fireman, a police officer, a nurse, a PUD lineman, a homemaker, or a high school teacher, of which all of those people were part of the planting of the churches I led. God calls all of us to be preachers, and he gives all of us a ministry to fulfill. What matters most is not who you are or what you do. What matters most is that you realize that this world and this life is not all there is. What matters most is believing that Jesus, the Lord and resurrected Savior, is returning to judge the living and the dead. What matters is that without faith, the Bible says, it's impossible to believe, to, sorry, please God. And whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him earnestly. 
that he rewards those who confess their sins and receive his mercy, that he rewards those who deny themselves and take up their cross daily, that he rewards those who press on toward the upward call faithfully, not perfectly, faithfully. What matters most, honestly, is that you don't waste your grace, that you don't waste your life by loving the world and its words, but that you truly long for Jesus appearing and that you live for the world to come. How? By preaching a sermon with your mouth and with your life. I think John Piper says it well. And I'll close with a quote from his book, Don't Waste Your Life. You should read it. He says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter. Perhaps just one. And then be willing to live and to die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one thing. And that one thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he died, that he was raised, that he is ruling right now, and he's returning again. Put your faith in him and not anything in this world because nothing in this world is going to last beyond death. Only the resurrected king in relationship with him will. And if that's all you ever hear over the last 15 years, that's the best thing to be said. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious that I've been grateful to be an instrument for your use. And I know, Lord, and we know that we are not perfect instruments. We are broken vessels, but Lord, by your grace, you use us to do pretty awesome things. Lord, would you give us the courage to preach the word? Would you give us the desire to know your word, to believe your word, and then the courage to preach your word? Yes, with our mouths at every opportunity, Lord, but with our lives constantly. Would you help us to live for more than just this life, to take risks in the name of Jesus, to be courageous in the name of Jesus, to be patient in the name of Jesus. Lord, with, when we come down to finishing our race, let it be said of us, Lord, that we made much of Jesus. And let us die and be forgotten and with him face to face. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.